Thank you, Rachel. I'm going to do my best here this morning. I've been trying to save my voice. I apologize if I did not uh, respond with a Merry Christmas. Um, I'm just trying not to use too many words up, but I wish you all a very Merry Christmas. <clears throat> Let me pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for this special day and what you've done for us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And I pray that you would um, open our hearts today as we receive your word. We thank you that Christ is the word made flesh. And I pray that we'd understand that more today now. In Jesus' name, amen. Maybe I should have switched my text to uh, Zechariah and the birth of John the Baptist. Um, that could have been a shorter one. But I'm going to try to make this quick. I'm sure we'll see how long I can hold out. I've got a PowerPoint. That should help. Let me get my clicker. There you go. All right. So we know that the birth of Jesus Christ is important, but do we know just how important it is? You know that it was unlike any other in all of history, but do you know what makes it so exceptional? So to say that Christmas is about the birth of Jesus is really just the tip of the iceberg in terms of how important this day is. There's something so much more essential for us to understand. And when we look at what John tells us here in chapter one, we see some key truths that tell us how important Christ's birth is. One is that we see that Jesus is God. Verse one says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God, and the word was God. It also tells us that Jesus has always existed. It says in verse 2 that he was in the beginning with God. And then third, that in the birth of Jesus, God became man. Verse 14 makes that clear. And the word became flesh, dwelt among us. These are profound truths. They are settled doctrines. They clearly put forth here in the first chapter of John uh, a truth that's been affirmed by the church for centuries about who Jesus is. But I want to take you back in time a little bit to the Council of Nicaea back in 325 AD, the emperor Constantine, the first Christian emperor of Rome, along with some of the bishops of the church at that time, recognized it would be important to clarify the church's teaching about Jesus, who Jesus is and what Jesus did. So they called together this this first major gathering of church leaders, this ecumenical council, they call it, at a place called Nicaea in what is now Turkey. And they were trying to primarily settle a debate between two of the leaders at that time. One was named Arius, and he argued that Jesus was a created God. Got a little picture there of him. 
And then Arius, his main uh, opponent in this argument, was a guy named Athanasius. Now, they say that in 325, Athanasius may have only been 19 years old. That's pretty incredible to think about. But he took on the task of arguing that Jesus was fully God. Now, that picture was not, must not have been taken at the Council of Nicaea. <laughs> But the debate between these two grew quite heated. And there's not a lot of settled historical fact. A lot of legends have kind of come down through the ages about what occurred at the Council of Nicaea. But one of the more interesting stories to come out of that council has to do with a bishop from Myra whose name was St. Nicholas. And as the story goes, St. Nicholas had uh, wealthy parents, and he inherited a lot of money. But when he, be, he joined the church, he became very generous and decided to give his money away, particularly in ways that would help the, the young and the destitute. There's a story that says he rescued three girls from prostitution by giving them gold from a sack that he carried around, that he went by their windows and tossed the gold into the windows and that it fell into their shoes and their stockings and that this provided money for them to live off of so that they did not have to go into a life of prostitution. Now, that's probably legend. We don't have any good ways of proving that. But the legend also has it that St. Nicholas was at the Council of Nicaea. In fact, if you look at the picture I put up there of Arius, Arius is actually the guy on the right, and it's St. Nicholas on the left. And the story is that St. Nicholas was so appalled at what Arius was saying about Jesus that in the midst of the council, he approached him and slapped him in the face. So that's St. Nicholas slapping Arius for his heresy. And regardless of how it all happened, the outcome is clear. The council determined clearly on the side of Athanasius and the idea that Jesus Christ is fully God and that he has always existed. And they put together what is now known as the Nicene Creed, sometimes recited in churches still today, but a very important uh, statement of our beliefs as Christians. And I'm going to show you just the excerpt of it from uh, the Nicene Creed that speaks to the person of Jesus. It says, I believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. Now there's a lot packed into that statement. And I hope you find it interesting because it's very critical that we keep this clear. Martin Luther, many years later, said this about our doctrine of Christ. He said, all errors, heresies, idolatries, offenses, abuses, and ungodliness in the church 
have arisen primarily because this article or part of the Christian faith concerning Jesus Christ has been either um, uh, disregarded or abandoned. You must stay with the person of Christ. When you have him, you have all. But you have lost all when you have lost him. The problem is many churches today are not teaching this very well. There's a survey that was released a few months ago uh, conducted by the Ligonier Ministry, and it's gotten quite a bit of attention for what it found. Uh, they say that 73% of professing evangelical Christians, that is people who say they believe in the Bible, who say they believe they are born again by Jesus Christ, professing evangelical Christians say that Jesus was created by God. And that's in direct contradiction to what the Council of Nicaea established. Second, this poll found that 44% say that Jesus was a great teacher, but that he was not God. How can we get away with the, so many people in the churches today, evangelical churches, so wrong about who Jesus is? You know, we, we celebrate Christmas as the birth of Jesus, but we need to understand what that means and why it's so important by understanding who Jesus is. Now, why has this happened? Well, I'm going to speculate a little bit here, but one possibility for why so many evangelical Christians have lost the doctrine of Jesus Christ uh, might be that theological truth is just losing its luster. We're not as interested in theology anymore. Boy, preaching like this, I feel like there was, oh, there was a preacher from the 80s and the 90s, James Montgomery Boyce. Anybody remember him? Some of you might. Third, 10th, 10th Presbyterian Church of Philadelphia. He had the deepest, groveliest voice. And when he preached, boy, you listen. I feel like James Montgomery Boyce right now. And he always preached theology. So I'm going to do that today. But theology has lost its luster. And this is a tragedy. And it wasn't always this way. Up until the mid-20th century, it was the mainline liberal denominations that ignored doctrine and theology and focused almost exclusively on politics. But evangelicals were the ones at the time who focused primarily on theology and doctrine. That's now changed. Mainline denominations have become relatively irrelevant. But evangelicals are following in that path by focusing primarily on politics and less on theology. And we've got to recover the importance of theological truth. Last week, I finished teaching a Sunday school class with the youth and adults, 16 weeks on essential doctrines of the faith. I had a blast teaching it. We started right off with the divinity uh, and humanity of Jesus. But I realized it's getting harder and harder to get people excited about these truths. But they are of absolutely critical importance. Second, there's a kind of cafeteria approach to faith these days. 
even among evangelicals, maybe most among evangelicals. We, we by and large have adopted this idea that faith is something we figure out more or less on our own, and it usually involves some kind of assembling together our various beliefs or ideas about this or that. So you go down the long bar of religious options and you cobble together your creed. You take some of these ideas, you blend them with some of those ideas, and you put them together into your religion or your faith journey or your spiritual quest, whatever you happen to call it. It's a total conceit, and it runs counter to the true nature of what faith should be, which is trust and allegiance to something outside of, bigger than, beyond ourselves. We don't need a faith that we can construct or deconstruct. We need a faith handed down to us. So back to John chapter 1. John beautifully introduces us to Jesus, not by telling us the story of his birth in Bethlehem, as Luke and Matthew do, but by placing him within the grand cosmic story of all creation. John 1.1 parallels Genesis 1.1. Both begin with those words, in the beginning. Both speak of light that is spoken into darkness. What's interesting between the two is that John places the emphasis now on Jesus Christ. He wants us to see that Jesus has been at work all along in this creation and in this story. He's been behind the scenes in the first part of the story, but now he's moved to center stage. And it's all about Jesus revealing the love of God and the work of redemption for the world. Why does this matter? Why is this so important? First, if Jesus isn't God, then the most important birthday in all of history becomes far less important. If Jesus isn't God, then Christmas is a myth or just another birthday like any other. Its only meaning would be what we happen to give to it. A lot of people seem satisfied with that, but as Christians, we know there must be much more. Number two, if Jesus isn't God, then he's either a liar or he's a lunatic. And this argument was made famous by C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, where he said this. He said, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. He must make, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view 
that he was and is God. Jesus couldn't say the things he said and remain reputable unless what he said was true. And then third, if Jesus isn't God, our eternal hope is in doubt. Jesus must be fully God and fully human in order to secure our salvation. This was the heart of Athanasius' argument against Arius. He said that no created being could save creation, that nothing within God's creation could save God's creation. In order for Jesus' salvation to be real and effective and true, it is essential that he be fully God. And only by being fully God and fully man can Jesus become the perfect sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. I like how S.D. Gordon describes him. He says, Jesus is God spelling himself out in language that man can understand. And I'm going to end with this. There's a, a lot of Charles Wesley um, writings that have been put to, to music. There are some of our favorite Christmas hymns. But there's one I haven't seen the music for yet. The words are a little technical, but boy, do they pack some theological punch. And I'm going to share with you just a few lines from his poem, The Incarnation. Look what Wesley said. Emptied of his majesty, of his dazzling glories shore, being's source begins to be and God himself is born. Being's source begins to be, and God himself is born. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great truth today. We thank you that Jesus Christ has come. We thank you that he was present at creation, that he is preexistent and eternal, and that he came to give his life for us. Lord, we celebrate that redemption and that hope today. We give you praise. Amen.